1: Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. Today it's me, Jeff, and I'm here with Aaron and Greg to talk about the top mountain bike stories on Single Tracks this year, 2015. So we just published an article today listing those top 25 articles, and we're specifically looking at the ones that were written by members of the Single Tracks team and that got the most page views during the year. So We've taken that list here today and broken it into sort of groups of different trends and things from 2015. And we're going to talk about it in that way. So the first trend that we noticed in the the most popular stories from this year was the popularity of articles about plus size wheels and tires and mountain bikes. And obviously, if you're a mountain biker, you've been following this story sort of all year. It was a big story at Interbike. And it continues to be something that a lot of writers are looking at. So actually three of the top 25 articles from 2015 were about plus size. So let me ask you guys, what was your favorite article this year about plus size or or what's sort of an insight that you've gained into
2: the plus size market this year? So I wrote a few articles on this myself, and I think probably my favorite was the article I wrote that was sort of a heads up comparison comparing the Scott Genius LT with standard 27.5 inch wheels uh, and the Scott Genius LT plus with the plus size wheel so it's the same bike same platform just different wheel size on back to back runs and i think that was you know probably the best way to try to determine okay what can these plus size wheels and tires do how do they feel different would they give you and i had a great time on it you can read the article for more information on what i see is like the potential benefits, drawbacks, etc. But personally, I just love them.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the other articles that was in the top 25 was my article about converting your 29er to a 27.5 plus in that article, you know, I talked about using the WTB scraper rims, which were designed specifically for that purpose. And also the WTB trailblazer 2.8 tires. I've been riding that wheel set for at least half the year now. And it's, it's been my go-to bike on my Santa Cruz Tallboy. But I will say that recently, in fact, just last night, I was riding a test bike that has, you know, regular 29er wheels and tires that are skinnier. And my first thought was, man, this bike is fast. And <laughs> I guess I didn't realize how much tire resistance I was getting, how, how slow that I felt, especially on like the road and places like that. So I think for me, I definitely am looking forward to doing more comparison between the plus size. I mean, I love it for technical and I love it in terms of handling, but there is definitely a trade-off there and I'm still not entirely sure exactly where I want that to
2: fall for my riding. Yeah, I guess the interesting thing was my back-to-back review was on a downhill run. So I didn't get to do like a full-blown, like say 20-mile ride on each one with up and down and everything in between. So. That would be uh, interesting to sort of parse out a little bit more. Yeah, it
1: definitely depends on your ride. I mean, my ride is probably more pedally than a lot that people are going to do, but it definitely opened my eyes to saying, wait a minute, maybe maybe I've gone a little too far here.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Jeff. You know, I just got that Pine Mountain 2, which is a 27.5 plus hardtail in for testing recently, and it's a fun bike, but I definitely found that you have to stay on top of it a little bit more. And what I mean by that is as soon as you let off the pedals, you start slowing down. You just don't have the momentum that you do, you know, certainly from a a standard 27.5 or, you know, in particular a 29 inch bike. It's just, they're fun. But to me, obviously we're going to be testing this. I don't want to give away too much. Just not not totally sold on the, on the 27.5 plus for my Kind of riding personally yet, but you know we'll we'll see as the as the testing goes on, and more generally, you know going back to the articles, I think I was struck by how quickly the entire industry jumped on the 27.5 plus thing because you know I know you mentioned Innerbike, but one of the articles in the top 25 was 12 27.5 plus bikes we saw at Sea Otter, you know, and Sea Otter is in April, so that's early in the year. It's kind of the first trade show of the year, and. It was really kind of eye opening to to go there and see so many 27.5 plus bikes already. You know, it was just kind of, you know, you saw maybe a couple of them last year at Interbike in 2014, and then boom, spring rolled around and everybody's got a bike, which means they've been working on them for much longer, <laughs> obviously.
1: Right. Yeah. That was definitely interesting to see. So one of the other topics that was really hot this year that took seven out of the top 25 articles for us this year were articles talking about destinations and travel for mountain biking. Articles about interesting places to ride and ranking sort of destinations and things. This is why Singletracks was started in the beginning. It was to help people find new trails to ride and to share their adventures on the trail. It's cool to me to see that people are finally starting to really embrace that. You know, In the early days of mountain biking, a lot of people were, it seemed to me, were content to ride you know, sort of the local stuff. But we're seeing mountain bike tourism really explode. And clearly there's a lot of interest in finding out about places to ride that are outside of sort of the local area. So which articles did you guys find most interesting from this year
2: that we're talking about destination and travel? In the past, we've written several roundups of top destinations parsed out by all sorts of different criteria you know, that were editorial driven. So our editors would choose the best ones that they've written at. We'd do research. We'd talk with people and we'd choose what we thought were the best destinations. But one of the things we tried to do this year was determine, okay, let's take sort of our subjectivity out of it, pull data from our database, you know, the best mountain bike trail database in the world and see objectively what destinations have the most miles of trail and the best quality trail based on our user rankings. And it turned out that currently um, this is a live updated uh, algorithm that we have running on the website. And currently the top four spots are occupied by places in Colorado. We have Breckenridge, Winter Park, Crested Butte, and Salida in the top four spots. And then Victor, Idaho bringing in number five. But you know, we would never write an editorial, you know, destinations list with f- the top four slots being filled by Colorado spots, just because we get blasted for being too Colorado centric. <laughs> but but I think it's interesting that the data actually like indicates that yeah, Colorado is just that good. <laughs> you know, so I thought that was pretty interesting and uh, an interesting way to go about it by putting the power sort of in the hands of our users because it's all based on them adding trails and them reviewing trails, uh, you guys really reviewing trails and having your say. So yeah. I thought that was pretty sweet.
0: A couple of my favorites were the uh, 10 best U.S. destinations for a weekend mountain bike getaway, and then the uh, the three best mountain bike road trips to take in the U.S. while gas prices are low, which I think we should probably update that when I was you know, talking to Jeff. I mean, gas prices now are probably – lower than they were when it was written so
1: road trip to alaska
0: (laughs) (laughs) what i like about that is they're more attainable like i would love to go on you know huge trips every year but uh, unfortunately don't get to take week-long vacations every year you know these are things that you know if you have a long weekend you know long holiday weekend or you can take a couple days off you can take anywhere from three to five days and go explore some some really cool places and there's one of our favorites obviously is mulberry gap you know as as far as a all kind of inclusive resort i guess you want to call it aimed at mountain bikers but you know now there's several popping up all over the place some in north carolina and and the whole travel aspect of mountain biking in general is uh you know something that uh it's kind of easy to get stuck in a rut like i found that even i've been kind of stuck in a rut riding the same trails locally and that's mostly a time consideration but when i do have entire day on the weekend that i can dedicate to riding i find myself going to the same trails even though they're farther out i'm still going up to to ride the pinhoties or to bull mountain and this past weekend i went to raccoon mountain in chattanooga for the first time in probably 7 years and i had a blast and it really really kind of reminded me of how much fun it can be to, to go explore a new place to ride.
2: Yeah. So I want to riff off of that a little bit. Speaking of you know, doing a road trip right now, I think probably my other favorite destination-style article that did really well this year was the top 10 fat bike trails in 2015 list that I put together because I think this idea of traveling to ride your bikes even on snow and during the winter is a pretty new one. I mean personally I still haven't done it yet. The only place I've places I've ever really fat biked are you know within maybe an hour of my home, you know. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of the beginning of a dream list for me. It's like, well, I can go travel to these epic mountain places and ride my bike even during December, January, February, and March. That's pretty rad. So if you're going to be hitting the road this time of year, I guess that's what I'd recommend.
0: Well, I tell you what—if I'm traveling anywhere where there's snow, I'm bringing my board, not my bike. But that's, that's probably just me being a Georgia boy. So,
2: <laughs> well, I'm planning—I'm hoping to do sort of a combo, you know, like bike plus skis. You know, you ski one day, bike the next day, switch back. Could be could be pretty sweet. Or you could combine the
1: two, like some of those bikes we've seen that have like a ski on the front, right? Right?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe not. One thing I have that is on the rise, though, um, is fat biking in up in the middle of nowhere. So I've talked with some friends that have done this in Grand Teton National Park. So they will fat bike in on the groomed roads, get way back into the park, and then they'll stop, drop the bikes, take their skis, which they had loaded on their bikes, and then backcountry tour up the mountainside and then do backcountry laps up in the national park finish up with their skiing and then fat bike back out and even at outer bike this year I saw a frame bag manufacturer that had built ski bag holders that would easily and comfortably hold your skis on your bike I was like dang this is this is getting pretty crazy right now
1: (laughs) yeah so using the fat bike as like a vehicle to get you
2: farther into the backcountry than you otherwise would have been able to do on your own power Exactly, because you can move much faster on a fat bike on a good surface than you can uh, with just ski skins. Yeah, interesting.
1: So the next category that we kind of identified in our, t- our coverage from 2015 is sort of the lifestyle aspect of mountain biking. Again, it was seven of the top 25 articles were sort of centered around the idea that mountain biking is a lifestyle and talking about the different Things that we've learned from mountain biking and the the different ways that we all approach the sport. So what stood out to you guys as being really interesting articles from that group?
0: Well, you know, not to toot my own horn or anything here, but the uh, article I wrote, There's Nothing Wrong With Your Bike, just about how kind of easy it is to get bike envy. You know, I have to fight it myself, you know, when somebody gets a really sweet new bike, even though we get to test a lot of really awesome bikes and my personal bikes are all really great. It is hard to not lust after that uber carbon wonder bike that rolls up yeah i guess it just really boils down to as numerous people have said it's always about the rider it's not about the bike so if you have a new super awesome mega light do it all carbon bike that's sweet but if you don't who cares just go ride (laughs) yeah
2: definitely for me uh, probably my favorite article in this category this year was John Fish's article about growing up versus growing old. Personally, I think this was one of the very best articles that we published on the website in 2015. So massive kudos to John for just putting together such an excellent piece.
0: Yeah, it's a good one.
2: Here's a quotation from that article. In it, John Fish says, Seeing the inevitable encroachment of time, we passively accept new limitations and expend what little energy we have left, lamenting our loss or bringing you about how good we were. What a sad way to spend what, for most of us, will end up being the majority of our lives. And he goes on to talk about you know, not settling for living life like you're past your prime. Instead, just embracing what new adventures you can have and where you can go on your bike. And I just think that's super inspiring. You know, I still haven't hit the age of 30, but even I sometimes fear that my best is behind me. Like over the past year dealing with injuries, I found myself in a dark hole asking, will I ever ride without pain again? And of course the answer was yes, but I think it's really good to gain that perspective that there are still shredders out there throwing down and having great rides and exploring beautiful places in their seventies. And even later, I think I and all of us have a lot of great riding ahead of us.
1: Yeah, that was a great article for sure. One of the ones that I thought was interesting and that kind of fits this category is the top occupations of mountain bikers. So that was like a little infographic that we posted. I was actually really surprised to see it made top 25. It was number 25, but it was in there. Um, <laughs> Still but counts. Yeah, it counts. I just thought that was really interesting to see the diversity of what mountain bikers do for a living. I mean, a lot of times when, when we write about the sport and, you know, even for people who are just reading about it online, we can start to think that mountain biking is sort of all that people do there's definitely a lot more diversity and richness like in each person that they bring to the sport. It's interesting that we all do come together with such diverse backgrounds and things to enjoy the same sport. So another category that we identified in the most popular articles this year is a category that we're kind of lumping together that's sort of centered around beginner mountain bikers and also advocacy. Within the the beginner sort of subgenre, one of the ones I really enjoyed was The 13 questions that beginning mountain bikers ask. I'd personally love to be able to do more of that kind of content. You know, a friend of mine, Chris Kelly, wrote an article on his personal blog along the same lines about inviting people to go riding with him and what to expect sort of from your first mountain bike ride, particularly if you've never done it before. I think that kind of content, for me, it's exciting because hopefully it's bringing more people into the sport and it's getting people comfortable with moving from that sort of novice stage to the beginner or you know intermediate stage in mountain biking, which is fun. There were also the, the advocacy articles, things talking about environment and just general trail building and that sort of thing. So what did
2: you guys find interesting within that group of articles this year? Chris Daniels' article, Stop Writing Like This, is basically promoting good trail practices and respecting the trail and not damaging the trail so that we keep our resources in good shape. It was interesting that it was actually much more controversial than I expected it to be. I think part of the controversy went back to the differences in local terrain and soil because a lot of these things are general rules of thumb and don't necessarily apply everywhere. But I think people also just don't like being told what to do. <laughs> right. Even though he was right about everything, people like, oh, you can't tell me how to ride. <laughs> But I think that sort of spills over into a bigger trend that might not have been as present in the top 25 this year, but that was pretty popular and controversial on the website and in the greater mountain biking industry. I mean, because we talked a lot about conservation and access issues over the past 12 months. And these are just items just off the top of my head. But in the past 12 months, we've talked about trails getting shut down in Portland, Oregon, which was around the time when Chris wrote his article. Uh, we talked about the Boulder White Clouds, wilderness closure in Idaho. We talked about tons of e-bike controversy surrounding Interbike and Imbus presentation there. We talked about trails being threatened to closure in New Mexico. Some were shut down. Others were open. A lot going on there. Trails are shut down in Montana. Trails are currently threatened in North Carolina. And we talked about a lot about the Sustainable Trails Coalition and their effort to get bikes back into wilderness areas. and. Pretty soon here, you'll be hearing more about e-bikes getting access to non-motorized single track in California. So it's been a pretty whirlwind of a year in the access front. So it'll be interesting to see where we go in the next 12 months.
1: Yeah. I thought in a lot of ways, I kind of felt like Chris's article too was a great beginner article because it is something that it's almost like an etiquette thing, right? Like when you're new to mountain biking, you just kind of jump into it and start doing your thing. You're not always aware of the etiquette, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I remember I took a uh, golf lessons and, you know, a big part of that, the lessons was getting you comfortable with like being out on the golf course and like things you should and shouldn't do the course that I went on. They really focused on that because they found that that was a big thing that kept people from getting started in golf. You know, people were afraid of looking foolish or, you know, not replacing their divots. And some guy comes and yells at them, you know, it's kind of the same thing to me that you people want to know how to ride the right way and how to respect the trails and to me yeah it's it's a great blend of like advocacy and also helping beginners out
2: yeah it was just interesting that more people weren't like okay well i'll do this then i didn't know that but i will do it (laughs) you know instead they were just like arguing like no, that's stupid i don't i don't need a ride like that
1: and those are the guys that have been riding forever you know but i think the beginners and people who Who didn't know either way I think hopefully they got a lot out of that
0: that would be the ideal scenario (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I think uh, I think you're right Greg I think the whole advocacy and access issue while maybe it wasn't prevalent in the in the top 25 especially recently the past couple months has been heating up and I think it'll only continue into 2016 and beyond so I think the main takeaway is to just pay attention to what's going on in terms of of access. And, you know, before you know it, you know, we could be losing more and more trails. You know, there's been some heated debate and rhetoric back and forth between uh, Imba and the STC, the Sustainable Trails Coalition. Who knows what's behind the motivations for making more areas wilderness? I mean, you know, there's, there's argument that there's some nefarious motivations that eventually, if no one uses these lands, then 15, 20 years down the road, you can they can say, oh, you know, no no one cares about these lands. No one's hiking. No one's using them. Like, let's open them up to logging and mining. Ooh, I know, right? Diabolical. So who knows? I mean, I, I would just say, like I said, pay attention. And whatever side you're on, just get involved. You know, if you if you support Imbus stance, get involved there. If you support the Sustainable Trails Coalition, you know, get involved. But just pay attention because I personally don't want to be limited to, to trails that are you know trail centers that are close to urban areas i want to have some remote big rides that i can you know aspire to do on my you know big trip every couple years
2: i agree with that and i would definitely say like Aaron was saying at the end get involved you know sometimes there's not a whole lot we can do but whenever we can even if it's just writing letters to our senators and making our voices heard we gotta try you know if we don't try we'll only have ourselves to blame if we do continue to lose access
1: yeah definitely so the final category of popular articles that we noticed this year was what I like to call the weird gear articles. So it's interesting because we do a lot of long-term reviews of very popular bikes and, you know, expensive components and things. But none of those showed up in this list of the most popular. It's not because, you know, we don't spend a lot of time writing those articles Honestly, we spend more time writing those articles than a lot of the other ones. It's interesting to me that the few sort of gear review items that showed up in this list were products that you've probably never heard of. So two of those that jump out are the oval chain ring that I reviewed several months ago. So it's an ovalized chain ring from Absolute Black. And we actually published two different reviews of oval chain rings this year, and Honestly, I think it's just so different that a lot of people are interested to know what it's about and, you know, if there are any advantages to it. The other one was my review of some inexpensive mountain bike lights that I ordered off amazon.com. Just in the last week or so, we've we've had some interesting updates on that. But again, it's one of those things that maybe a lot of people are sort of aware of or they've heard friends talking about it, and so once We were able to review it. I think it generated a lot of interest in people finding out, you know, sort of, is this hype? Is this a legitimate thing to get? So Greg, do you want to give us an update on those inexpensive Amazon lights that we reviewed earlier this year?
2: Yeah, I'll jump in there, Jeff. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic because there are actually a lot of people that own these and use these and I know people that do and um, so it's it's pretty prevalent widespread. I just don't think we've seen many actual like editorial reviews on them on mainstream mountain biking websites such as our own before. So I think that was an interesting sort of progression. But just last week, we published an interview that I conducted with a rider by the name of Adam Krieger. He had purchased one of the lights that actually Jeff didn't receive was trying to get. But it has a lot of similarities with many other cheap Chinese lights that are inexpensive that people tend to buy on Amazon or eBay. And his home was actually caught on fire while charging the light because the battery began to explode. It destroyed his home, destroyed almost all their possessions, killed their pet, and it was a pretty tragic experience. So um, he got in touch with us and wanted to share his experience because he spotted you know the article on our website and he just wants people to be aware of the danger that some of these lights which you know may not have to pass safety inspections because they're produced in china present so if you haven't read that interview yet i really encourage you to go find it on the website and and read it and just be aware and be informed about the potential danger of some of these things personally i don't own any of these super cheap bargain basement lights but it still changed the way i charge my own lights you know, I now keep an eye on them, only charge them when I'm in the room and actually can be monitoring those lights because you really never know. I mean, it, it doesn't take much. Yeah. Well,
1: part of the reason that I wanted to review the lights was because it seems every time we publish a review of a legitimate light system, there are always comments about how overpriced they are and how there's way cheaper, better lights that you can buy online. And I mean, it's it's really crazy how fervent people are about this idea of buying these inexpensive lights and, you know, how they're, they're getting such a great deal and sticking it to the man. And so I thought it was good to actually put out an honest review. And even my honest review, a lot of people took issue with the problems that I found with the lights, including the fact that there was a real spark hazard that I could tell just visually from looking at
0: the lights Right. I mean the battery cells were like wrapped in paper and electrical tape essentially, right? right. I mean it was you know Yeah. Yeah. They,
2: yeah. Sketchy.
0: Definitely I understand you know you're saying about the comments that we get because we do every time we publish a you know, a review of a light from Knight Rider or Light in Motion or another reputable company, people do. They say, Oh, I can get eighty seven million lumen light off of Amazon for ninety nine cents and free shipping. <laughs> and I think as you found their their brightness claims tend to be way, way overstated. And if you look at the construction, there's a reason why yeah. it costs, you know, twenty five bucks. It's it's sketchy. I mean, you know, and then people are like, spending five hundred dollars on a light is ridiculous. Okay, maybe that is ridiculous to you, but there there's a lot of lights in between the, you know, fifteen, twenty dollar light and a five hundred dollar light system. Yeah. You know, like the the whole Lumina series you know they're like they can be had for anywhere from like 120 to 150 bucks and it's a really nice light and it's plenty of light to ride with and you know it's from a reputable company so i mean you know god forbid if something did happen or you know, you have any issues with the product like at least there's someone to go back to you know it's not mm-hmm. not just a random you know random page on amazon so
1: yeah well this also brings to mind another article from this year Um, we had a guest writer contribute an article about some inexpensive carbon mountain bike rims that he was running on his bike. To be upfront, I don't know the the person who wrote that article personally. So it seemed to me though from reading it that he was really defending these rims, which ultimately Right, didn't he break two? He cracked them. Yeah. I mean (laughs) he cracked two sets of them or maybe just two rims. But point is I think it's good to get these stories out there because there's a lot of confusion and there are a lot of people on both sides of the issues who are pushing for sort of their point of view on it, that there are these deals to be had that are incredible. And then people on the other side saying, hold on, like, that's not a good idea. And so I enjoyed being able to uncover sort of some of the truth behind those statements.
0: Going back to the plus-size wheel trend, I think there's kind of another trend, which is sad to me personally, and it's <laughs> the decline of 29, I'm calling it. You know, there just seems to be, since there's so much hype around, you know, at first 27.5 and now 27.5+, it seems that 29ers are getting a little less love. You know, there's obviously still new bikes coming out and companies are updating their current models, but it just doesn't seem like they're, you know, maybe they're just not getting getting as much push as they, they used to be. But, you know, I, for one, you know, I love all bikes, but you know, for the you know big all day rides that I like to do, I really enjoy a 29er. You know, I, I think the new bikes that we are seeing are really cool and the short travel 29er, but aggressive geometry. So, you know, low bottom brackets and short chain stays and slacker head tubes. I think that's a really cool uh, trend that we're seeing on the, uh, on the new, the new 29ers that we, that are becoming available. And that's, you know, one of those is probably going to be my next bike. So
1: yeah, well, that's a challenge. So let's see if you can get a 29er article into the top 25 for 2016.
0: I'll <laughs> well, tell you what, I'm telling you, Santa Cruz, they're going to release the Tallboy LT. It's got to be their next bike. And yeah. If we get one of those in review, <laughs> I'm calling it now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome.
1: So cool. This has been fun looking back on the top articles of 2015. And in a couple episodes, we're going to be talking about what we've got on tap for 2016. So definitely be sure to tune in for that. That's all we've got for today. Thanks for joining us again. Peace.